Okay, everybody. So we're going to talk in games today. And first, I just want to introduce how we got to this topic. I recently reviewed this book by Ben Johnson, friend of the dojo, called Perpetual Chess Improvement. And the idea of the book's really cool. So he has been doing a podcast, one of, probably, let's say, the most successful chess podcast. It's been going on forever. And hundreds of interviews, many of which are either improvers or trainers. And every time he asks them, like, what's your take on training? What should you do? So he's got like this compendium of advice. And then I like the way the chapters are kind of broken down where we talk first about what people agree on and then what people disagree on. So let me just introduce, uh, and I talk a little bit this in the, um, in the video, but I just want to read it off here. So the things he agrees on is you got to do tournament games, i.e. longer games over the board. You got to do game analysis. This is where everybody agrees. Third, you got to do calculation. Fourth, you should have some kind of community, coaches, mentors, friends. That will all help. And then in my review, I was like, boss, you obviously have to have structure too. And he kind of agreed with me. And it's interesting, actually, with all those people, because they're all giving advice um, but it's unstructured advice, you know, like here's something just out of the blue, here's something you should do. And it doesn't come with a structure. And I think a lot of people who listen to shows like that have a problem and they're just like taking one thing and then being confused by another thing. And it's this potpourri of stuff. And I'm hoping the dojo helps deal with that. Now, I do want to say I very much respect Ben's erudition, both in books, especially in chess training. So this book is really a good touchstone for us at the dojo to think about the training program and what we're doing. Now, there are several things where people don't agree. And we I want to do at least a couple shows on this. Um, do amateurs do too much opening study? We're gonna talk about end games. Should you study the classics? Right? How do you feel about speed chess? All these things are, let's call them the controversies where people don't agree on. And I think they're all interesting shows. I have to convince the other senseis of that, though. But we did agree that we wanted to talk endings. And there is surprising for me disagreement about endgames. Some there's a dude on on Twitter called Studer, and he's from Switzerland, I think. He's a GM. And he's like Bishop and Knight make you don't even need to do that, Bows. Our friend, our friend he's been on the podcast. David interviewed him. <laughs> Yeah, he's been, on this, he's been on this show before. Dojo talks professionalism. And he he's not the only one on Twitter who rails against uh, spending time on the theoretical end games. He's definitely not the only right. one. So what we're going to talk about today is some of these things. Like first, how important is the end game? General question. And then we have question of theoretical end games, practical end games, and then just in general, how would you get better at them? if you wanted to get better at them. And so I'll leave it there, but we can jump off from that little intro, I think. Yeah, and what are the best end game books? Yeah, well, yeah, I feel like we should start, yeah, with like the big question that it's like, um, should should one spend time on the theoretical end games and maybe at what level should you be spending mm -hmm. this this time? Because that, that, I definitely, hear this sentiment a lot where people are like, I'm never going to get bishop and knight made. I'm never going to get queen versus rook. Uh, personally, myself, I do not want to study two knights versus pawn. I find mm -hmm. that end game just like really tough. And mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, I, I can't even think of a game where like I could have gotten it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's... Hostia, one of, I mean, surprisingly, one of the best experiences of my life was sparring the two knights versus pawn with Jesse. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't see it coming like you. I was like, oh, man, that is a nightmare. And it's a nightmare. in the 2400 plus <laughs> cohort. Yeah. Like, maybe I never have to do that one. You know, maybe. Right. Maybe it I mean, have to come up. With the other but game, Jesse like, was with, begging um, me to spar yeah. it with him. And so I did. I mean, y you could even go back and watch it. It was so good. You'd probably enjoy watching the I think I caught it. some of the stream. Yeah, it was... Yeah. It was fun. Because Jesse checkmated me twice in a row with the two knights. And in the third game, he failed and didn't get any dojo points after like three hours of work. I mean, <laughs> he was in so much pain. It was just glorious. Well, that's why people have this question. It's like, even if you study it and then you know how to do it, I think Jesse at one point definitely claimed that he knew how to do it. You might still mm -hmm. fail 
in in practice. But okay, I think two nights that's a very that's a really tough one. I think for the most part, like if you learn something like you know like Philidor Endgame, Lucene Endgame, you practice it a bunch of times. Generally, you're able to to pull it off even in a game with with the mm-hmm. the pressure. Um, I mean, with other end games, my opinion has always been not that you should learn bishop and knight, for example, because you're going to get it one out of a thousand games, but rather just the act of learning that end game improves your sense of like peace, harmony, coordination, zugzwang, like all these little skills that I think are way more applicable to just the bishop and, and knight end game. Also, it just shows you a lot of patterns. You have to be familiar with how the bishop and knight coordinate together. Um, mm-hmm. Just a simple understanding that if your bishop is on a dark color, then your knight should also be on a dark square so that it controls the light squares. That might not be super intuitive unless you've like done that end game a lot. Um, yeah. So with other end games, I definitely agree that like just doing it, just learning it, teaches you more than just how to do that one specific end game. I think if the point of learning one of these end games was to once in your entire career have a 70% chance of scoring half a point more, because you still have a fair chance of botching it for the hard ones, mm. right? 70, 80% chance to score one half point more. Obvious. No point in doing these like one case scenarios of end games that almost never come up. And you, they also have different levels of incidents, right? Like Philidor, you've probably had in your games like Very a few common. times because you can see that rook and pawn endings are far more common than queen endings and two knights versus pawn is like the least likely thing of all. Um, so, I mean, you could tier it and then say, oh, I'm going to do a couple that are like rook end games that do come up like five times in somebody's career because you could probably gain or lose a couple points just off of Lucent or Philidor. Um, and then forget everything else. But that's not why we do any of these, right? The real reason that I think all three of us are going to agree that you should study some of these theoretical end games if you can stomach it, is that they teach you the fundamentals, like you're saying, of how the pieces move and the patterns. I always used to use the king and rook checkmate to introduce the concept of Tsugzwang. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? That you get the king to the back row. Let's say he's on the back row for you already, and you've got king and rook. And you can't checkmate the dude if he's allowed to pass, right? You just wait there, and every time you threaten checkmate, step away. And I mean, you have to learn the concept of Tsugzwang at some point, right? I mean, that's that's worth learning. So okay. why not do it in a really clean, basic mm-hmm. position that's also going to teach you how the king and rook dance around each other? Yeah. Now, let me just push back a little bit and then expand just my own personal view on this. So first of all, I just wanna be clear, we're talking about theoretical endings. And to, I think a lot of people, when they think about end games, they think about theoretical end games. And theoretical end games are definitely important, but I think the other aspects of end games are actually more important. So I wanna save the, that for later and say, theoretical end games, that's maybe 20% of what end game knowledge uh, and ability is about, maybe even less. Let me stress though, that there's three reasons to do these things. And I'm gonna tell a quick story. So today I did the grad show that we talk about who made it to the next level. And our friend, Genesis Wipad Dave made it to the next level. And we, I looked at this torturous game of Dave's and Dave had been doing a bunch of tactics, but he'd been skipping leg day. It was obvious that he'd been skipping leg day. And, um, at his, we're talking about somebody who's graduating, I think, to the 600 to 700 cohort. And one of the things we have there on leg day for them that's super important is that you have to mate with the queen king versus king three times. Now, I'm sure at a certain level, Dave thought he could do it, um, but probably hadn't actually practiced it. At the dojo, you got to prove it three times against the person. Maybe sounds easy. If you do those three times, you're probably going to get it right, though. And what happened? Stalemate, my friend. Stalemate. He's playing an over-the-board game. Oh, oh, baby, that hurt. That really hurt. So one of the things I want to say is with all of these um, algorithms that we have all the way up, I have gotten every single one except the two knights versus the pawn. And that one, I have had the possibility of smelling it in the distance. I have I've definitely smelled it in the distance. 
Um, so it's definitely, you will get them just as Je Nesui Ba Dave figured out. Okay, so that's number one. Two, I totally concur with what Dave's, David's saying about learning the patterns and stuff. But beyond that, there's something really important. By studying endgames, and not just the theoretical ones, we're going to talk about the other aspect of endgames too. What I've seen coaching is that players who don't do endgames fundamentally become scared of endgames, and that's why you see them playing like a maniac at the beginning of the game so that they never reach the end game so that they never reach the end game and that is a huge hole that just becomes this anxiety in their games and then they get a simple position as we're gonna get everybody's gonna get some simple positions and they lose their minds they lose their minds so that ability of like psychological confidence and we'll talk more about endgame skill in general but part of it is theoretical endgames is very important for any player and I know that myself as a kid, yeah, it was like, uh, let's try to win the game with tactics because we ain't going to win the end game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100% true. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's a great point. Um, and just it's interesting that you said so 20% theoretical end games, 80% uh, presuming like practical end games, like with a lot of pieces on the board. Um, and I've definitely seen what you're talking about with the end game anxiety. I also see people just totally panic when they get to the end game and it's clear you know i'm watching a game between two club players they could be like 1200 1600 but then it becomes very apparent that like their play loses all logical consideration once they get to some kind of like king and pawn end game and then they're like moving their king backwards because they're afraid to step forwards because they don't know what's going to happen and it's like they could have just moved their king and taken some pawns and it's like at that point, it would have been better if they had if they didn't know anything about the end game. They were just playing purely on intuition. So what what often happens is like someone learns some idea like opposition, then they try to apply it in some case, and they just like kind of confuse themselves and make make some very strange moves. Um, but I think I'm with you guys. I mean, the way to get through that is just by having more practice, more experience, and then you, you feel a lot more comfortable uh, in the end game. Now, when it comes to the theoretical end games, I really feel like um up to Philidor and Lucina, I think those endgames are just like really fundamental. Like of course checkmate with like King and Rook, everyone should know how to do that. But like holding the Philidor position and being able to win a Lucina, I think these are so fundamental. I would really suggest anyone that's over um I, I forget exactly where we have it in our program. I think it's like twelve, thirteen hundred, but really anyone over like a thousand, twelve hundred, I think, is doing themselves a great disservice if they don't study and practice um, the end game. Uh, the big mistake I often see that we try to correct by encouraging a lot of end game sparring is people read the chapter on the Philidor, they read the chapter on the Lucina, it all makes sense when they follow the game in the diagram, and then they never practice it. And then of course, as soon as you, as soon as you watch them have it in a game situation, they of course mess it up because they've only seen it in a book. They haven't actually like tried to do it uh, themselves. Um, yeah. so coast it. I just throw in one word there, or even they read the chapter in the book or they watch the video on it and they don't get it. And then they just get discouraged about theoretical end games in general and think like, Oh, I can't follow these, like, you know, just turning around in circles because without actually doing it, you know, they, they may often just not get it and then yeah. give up on theoretical end games. And then, yeah, it feels a little challenging. They, yeah, they meet that resistance and then there's like, eh, <laughs> I'll just make sure I'm two pawns up when I'm winning. <laughs> I won't have, exactly. have to deal with it. I spent so much of my life chasing that second pawn coast. You're so right. Um, but the ironic thing is a lot of times I'll see, you know, classic Lucina endgame being played out. And then the defending side doesn't even defend in the most, you know, uh, stubborn way. And so the winning side doesn't even have to show the Lucina. They just win much, much simply. Um, so... Yeah, I feel like that's, I don't know, that to me, it does seem like a serious leak in a lot of players' games. And uh, I get that a lot of people are kind of like bored by the in-game study, or it's just like it comes difficult for them, so they don't want to do it. I've definitely like been there. Um, I'm not sure what exactly the solution is. Obviously, I think it, you know, the in-games are super important, but I think you do have to enjoy what you're studying in order for it to really kind of 
sink in. I would encourage people to maybe take a little bit of of pride. Like personally, like if I win a nice technical end game, I'm sure you guys feel the same. Like I feel really good about it. I feel like, oh, I'm I'm Karpov. I'm I'm Magnus, you know, when I win like this like really thin endgame. Um, so I feel like there is a way out where if you kind of take pride in the thing that you're working on, um, even if it's challenging, especially if it's challenging, then I think that can really help people kind of get over uh, that that hump of like, oh, I don't, uh, this position's too technical. I don't want to, I don't want to look at it. Um, yeah. You know, I do have one suggestion for that scenario if you want, Kostya, for, for getting over the hump for people who don't like it. Yeah. Um, and it's related to what you said about how you really enjoy when you win a game. I think that within the vastness of end games, you could try and find one little part of end games that you can get good at. And sometimes the like being good at something makes you enjoy it, right? Just like being just like enjoying something can make you good at it, right? So if instead of trying to master all end games or become a good end game player, if you just said like here's one kind of end game that I'm going to learn how to do like king and pawn endings with one extra pawn. I'm going to learn how to win them or I'm going to learn, you know, for me, it was just positional knight versus bishop. It was such an interesting conflict in the middle game that the only kind of end game I knew for a long time was how to play with like a good knight against a bad bishop or a good bishop against a knight. Mm -hmm. And that was it. But like it was that was like a hook to get into end games in some way. And I think that really goes with our sparring approach. If you can get really good at one little piece, it helps you realize that you can get good at other parts of it too and enjoy it. Yeah. And actually, I want to say, I feel like there's there's three parts to the end game. So there's the theoretical end games. There's the like positional end games or practical end games, as we can call them. Um, also, there's, I would say, maybe a third element is like end game tactics like tactics mm -hmm. that are very specific to the end game and a lot of them are very pattern based so if yeah. you haven't if you haven't seen it before it'd be very hard to figure it out so classic example is like the a pawn against the knight tactic where you sack a piece on b7 or on g7 the knight recaptures you push a6 you push h6 and then the knight can't can't stop the pawn it's like once you see that tactic it's like oh that's super useful that could come up and it's like and a lot of times you you do need it to win to win certain end games. Uh, I do think it's more fun in general to study the uh, practical end games. So, like a classic book um, we have in our program, of course, End Game Strategy by Sharashevsky and maybe Dvoretsky. Maybe Dvoretsky was involved, um, but just learning how to play a lot of these classic positions, studying these classic end games from like Capablanca and Alekhine and Rubinstein, all these guys. Um, I think learning. Uh, and it's not like I think people maybe mess it up. They they feel like they have to learn rook end games and like bishop end games, knight end games. A lot of the end game principles they they transfer over. I mean, it's just stuff like using your king. You know, king activity can be worth a pawn or even more in the end game. Principle of two weaknesses. If you have a pass pawn, you have pawns on the other side of the board. It makes sense to stretch your opponent's defenses, play on both sides of the board. These are things that come up regardless if you have a rook end game, bishop end game, knight end game. These principles are often. Um, are often there. Um, so I don't feel like there's a ton of theoretical end games that people like have to know. Um, but it's just like, there's a few that are just like so critical, so fundamental, especially like, again, Philidor and Lucina, so many rook end games will boil down to one of these two positions that it's like, yeah, just knowing that chunk, it, uh, it really gives you a lot of, um, uh, a lot of room to to work with. One one coach actually, I, I was I was speaking to. He had a he had a great analogy. He called it um, kind of called it like a lighthouse. He said like your, you know, your base of theoretical endgame knowledge. It's like a lighthouse, right? It directs the ship. Like when you're playing a game, you're in a ship. You don't know where you are. You're trying to get to land. When you see the lighthouse, the bigger it is, the more space, the more like ground you cover. The bigger your base is, the more endgames you know easier it is to kind of get to the shore where now you know exactly what you're doing so it's like um i feel like that's a really interesting way of thinking about chess you have your opening base like how many openings you know your opening theory you have your end game theory your two bases and this big ocean in the middle and you're just trying to get from one <laughs> one end to the other and the bigger your bases are the less work you have to do in the middle game to actually <laughs> to actually get there which is kind of uh kind of cool yeah. Or your uh, lighthouse could be that tasty second extra pawn. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as much skill. I like the lighthouse. Yeah. Um, it takes so much. So one thing to bring back a little bit to the book and just how I think about it, like, so uh, when I said twenty percent theoretical end games, I think a lot of people are confused by that because they think of it as being much bigger. And a lot of times, people I know they're like, "Oh, Dvoretsky's Endgame Manual, which is basically all theoretical end games, which we which we call algorithms in our program." They think that is the sum of end game knowledge, and no, it's just really a part of it. And something the Dojo Training Program has helped me understand is, you know, I go over a lot of games from players, whether it's the grad show or different shows that I do. And I've noticed this fascinating thing that I put in, turned into a rule. I'm writing this little thing called how to analyze your games. Hopefully we'll have that out next year. And that one of the rules is, if you aren't doing something in your analysis, you aren't doing it in your games. And the way this applies to the end game is really fascinating because you look at almost, and this, this goes from like the 300 cohort all the way up, is that you'll look and the annotations will be pretty thick sometimes in the opening. And then there'll maybe be a couple spots where they're going deep in the tactics. And then this amazing thing happens where we get to the end game and you'll just see a whole series of moves. And there's completely unannotated. And what that shows me, and because I've talked and you know watched these players, is those moves were played quickly. They were played as if there was no choice or something. And that's where like, oh my God, so many mistakes were made. So much discussion was available there for the post-game analysis. And so one of the things I really want to stress when it comes to endgame skill is when you go over your games deeply in the endgame, what you're going to find is some different kind of thinking is happening than the um, tactics you get in the middle game, for example. There's going to be first a general awareness of principles of strategy of like, can I sack a pawn? Instead of sacking a pawn for peace activity to mate the guy, can I sack a pawn to get the king in? That kind of stuff. Can I get the rook in? But then also, once you do that, you realize, oh, with the end game, it becomes far more concrete, far more concrete. That means there's more variations and the variation tree often becomes much larger than you would want it to be in the middle game, for example, where you really want, you don't want a long variation. Sometimes in the end game, especially in analysis, you can take that variation out. Just going over today, there's a bunch of pawn end games and they were like, yeah, I don't know. No, <laughs> figure it out, boss. And if you do, if you do, if you're doing a game analysis, do, figure out a pawn endgame, boss, you've really done yourself a service because it's all there. All the magic is right there for you. I and think, so Jesse, that often people don't realize that there's still stuff going on. Like they think the player who's winning is winning and that the player who's losing had no chance or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like even, uh, even way back, a lot of the old masters, they would like annotate a game and then they would say something like you know the realization of white's advantage requires no further comment or oh. something like that and then it's like you know 25 moves of somebody winning an end game with an extra pawn yeah. and i feel like i saw that even in you know games from 120 years ago mm -hmm. and just one thing i want to add too is in the analysis and in the games people are generally exhausted by the time they get to the end game. So their system to thinking is just depleted. It's like an energy store is wiped out. And when you realize that, and you realize it by going over your games, because you're seeing it in your opponents and yourself, you can see it in the move times. People aren't thinking. They're just doing an impulsive move. It's a massive competitive advantage. And all you have to do is sit with those positions and you're going to become really good. Those we call simple positions. And by simple, we don't mean that this position is simple. It just means that there's less pieces on the board, which actually makes it more concrete. Um, and the other thing that Costa said, let's call it the third dimension, was endgame tactics. And that really is its own special skill. Um, I think, for example, that Fabi is the best at endgame tactics. Like, obviously, Carlson is the best endgame player to ever live, but endgame tactics, dude. Fabi, stunner, absolute stunner in creating wild endgame tactics. And 
what I want to say about that is, and this is something I want to bring up about our program, is something that I want to fix for Dojo 3.0 that I feel critical about is we don't have a diet of endgame studies for the higher cohorts. And that can't partly because we didn't find consensus about a book that was easy to buy. I have a great book, but it's impossible to buy. Um, that would be, you know, amenable, let's say 1800 plus to get like what Kosi was saying about, let's say the Rook Pond versus the Knight, that kind of a study like thing, getting that ingrained into the process of endgame play. That to me was a big deal to go over a lot of those endgame studies. So you're right. I would say the biggest part portion of it, just to go put it out in portions, you know, 50%, 60% going over your games and doing deep analysis. Back in the day, they would be doing the German analysis. That's how they learned it. They went so deep into those positions, and that's how they got good at end games, right? 20%, um, you know, let's call it theoretical end games. They honestly, this is, and those theoretical end games are more for your general chess vision and erudition than they are in that you're going to wipe wipe some dude out. And then finally, we have like studies slash tactics. And so that's kind of like my sphere of what I think of how endgame knowledge is built up. But but if you're going to count the time analyzing our endgames from our games in this endgame study time, then I think the theoretical endgames needs to be even much less than 20% because you didn't even include sparring our positional endgames in uh, in the, the pieces you just listed. No, I mean I think that's very important. I didn't I didn't mean to say that, but uh, but just in terms of like people out there listening, maybe they're not even part of the program. I just wanted, to, you know, that's but that's part of it, right? You you need to play positions, right, that are yeah. hard, and then think about it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I want to add on to what Jesse was saying. I think the biggest mistake that people make in end games. I think I did a video about this for us as well. Um, it's not that they don't know a specific end game or they didn't study something or it's like they're missing some concept. I think the biggest mistake by far, like club players and below make, probably above club level as well, is just they blitz in a position where there's options. So they have a they have a choice, but they don't even realize there's a choice. They just make the first move that comes to mind. And it's just people play way, way too fast. Like in the middle game, it's rare that there's a situation where you have one winning move and every other move is losing, right? It's it's pretty rare. You might have like one or two critical moments like that in a middle game. Both kings are getting mated. In the end game, it often happens where it's like one move is winning, mm. everything else draws, or some moves lose, or one move draws, everything else loses. So you have like multiple like critical moments in the end game. And yeah, I often see people just like blitz it out like we're, we're watching some game someone offers a, a trade into a king and pawn end game we're like okay this is going to take 10 minutes to figure out like whether this king and pawn end game is good and then the decision just comes intuitively either they trade or they don't trade but it happens quickly and it's like oh you don't even you don't even think about it like what, what what's going on and exactly. i think people like yeah they'll just make like multiple like huge blunders back to back on and with time on their clock because they don't realize that there's a choice. They don't know exactly like how to start breaking down and analyzing the position. But like Jesse was saying, it's like it's the process of doing it that will get you to be better at it during the game. So like doing it outside of the game, going deep in your own games, analyzing like move by move the specific end game variations. This process will definitely, I think, develops one's analytical skill. And then that will give you a much easier time during the game when you have time on your clock, like 20, 30 minutes, to actually sit there and start working through the options. I have this move, I have this move, maybe this is a move, okay, and then just start breaking it down. What will the opponent do against option one, option two, and and so on. Because people are often like, oh, I don't know what to think about, right? So it's like, I think the first step is actually just, just trying to spend that time doing your best then afterwards, of course, you can always evaluate your decision making, what you saw, what you didn't see. And then I think you get a lot of improvement from that. But yeah, when people are just kind of clueless about the end game, they're afraid of the end game, they have this end game anxiety, they end up just blitzing stuff out. And then the cycle continues. And then they, they don't really study that game too much. And then next time, it's just a total, total roller coaster once again. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, I really yeah. think, yeah, just the biggest mistake is just like just playing too fast in the end game. Is, is people think uh, either they think everything is simple and there's no there's no details to be analyzed, uh, or they're just overwhelmed and and they're just, I just don't know what to do and they just <laughs> they just make a move first move they see. Yeah. Um, on maybe just pushing the theoretical endgames question just a little bit further, um, do you do you guys really feel that there's a certain list of positions that one needs to learn or that you just need to spend some time working on them? Yeah, we, we have this list in the program. Yeah, we, we have, have a list, list of, <laughs> of algorithms. I would say mm -hmm. for people not in the program, the easiest thing to do, in my opinion, is to get uh, Silman's endgame book study it up to your level like it's broken each chapter is broken down in terms of what end games every rating level needs to know we don't agree with someone on everything i think he doesn't have the the bishop and knight end game in the book for example but uh, i think that's a that's a great start like already just for anyone that's like never done any end game work i think just studying someone's book up to the 1500 level if you're 1500 you could study one chapter beyond if you're uh, you know, overachiever. I think that's total. I think that's a great way to, to do it right there. Yeah, I I love the list we have, but I personally feel like it's not super critical to have learned every single one of those positions or those specific positions. I think it's useful to have learned some theoretical end games and at least one with each piece. So, like the bishop and knight made is cool because it's covering the bishop and the knight partly. Right. But like if instead you learned a certain bishop ending and a certain knight endgame position, I think that could be cool, too. Um, people generally learn the Philidor and the Lucena, which are very useful. But if you learned a different rook endgame, like let's say you just got really good at the long side defense. I I think then you could probably, you know, figure out Philidor over no, the no, board. No, but come on, you can't, but, you know, you can't learn the long side without understanding Philidor and, and Lucina. I mean... Yeah, but I, <laughs> just giving an example, right? Like, I think if you, like, drill into, like, a theoretical rook and pawn ending, it probably translates somewhat. Like, you, you learn some of the skills around the king and rook that we're really... is what we're really looking for. So I'm not too militant about how it has to be a certain list, although I like our list. I don't know. I feel very strongly that Philidor and Lucina is actually like, honestly, I think that's good up up until a very, like, really high level, um, mm -hmm. like maybe even master level. If you just knew, like, very confidently how to win Lucina position, how to draw the Philidor position, mm -hmm. I already think like for the rook end games, like that's good enough. You can just focus on the the playable rook end games you know, one extra pawn on the side of the board, three versus three, you know, stuff like that. Um, okay, you can maybe consider that one theoretical as well. But um, yeah, I, I feel like if you just focused on just like playing good rook end games in general, activating the king, activating the rook, this kind of thing, like I really think Philidor and Lucina is the bulk of... Because, oh, I, I mean, you guys know this, but yeah, if you know how to hold the Philidor position, that means you can also hold... Rook and three versus rook and two, because eventually it's going to boil down to to Philidor or rook and four versus rook and three. Like a lot of these end games, they, they just boil down to this end game with one extra pawn. And you're really covering a ton of ground. I agree they're the best to learn. I just what I'm saying is if somebody learned a different rook and pawn ending. And put in that work. They would probably reach a pretty similar level. Like the key thing is to have spent that time working on a position where you learn how those particular pieces interact. Did you recently get mated? Well, it's time to join the Chess Dojo training program. Or maybe you just enjoy this fine content. Give us some money on the Patreon. I need to keep the lights on. And with inflation, it's really hard for Costa to be buying that avocado toast. One thing I really like about our structure is that, first of all, it's a real problem if you're just out on your own and then you don't know what to learn. So the Silman, for example, is cool because it tells you what you need to learn at what level. And even though we might have mild disagreements with it and you could jadoob a couple of those things, it's really important for there to be like a scaffolding going up. And for example, I really like that beginning around 1600, we start introducing the Rook endgame progression 
and then some of those positions. And, you know, and that's something I think we're going to work to do better at with Dojo 3.0 to make it more um, amenable for sparring. But in any case, right, like I love our progression and it's telling you exactly what you need at which level. And mm -hmm. it's almost kind of as a little bit of a joke that we have the two knights versus and versus the <laughs> pawn uh, at the 2400 plus. But it's also just like this crowning, interesting end game. Right. But all the other ones, I mean, I want to stress, I've had them, I've learned from them, and there's variations on them. As in, it's not just one position. That's why we, I think sparring is so important, right? Because you get somebody who's good at it, and they're going to work you around and around. And like we did uh, with the bishop and rook versus rook. And that thing's I mean, that's a great example. That's just one of many examples where you, first of all, you won't get it that often, but if you don't get it, it just means you haven't played chess that much. <laughs> that's, all, that's all that means. Or maybe you were afraid of the end game to begin with. And right, the geometry, the Zugzwang in those positions is completely fascinating and will carry over to other things. Especially like David said, I want to stress the beginning level, whether it's just like mate with the, king and the rook versus the king you can't do if, if a player can if, if chess were had a rule where you were allowed to pass you wouldn't be able to mate it's an amazing fact about chess you wouldn't be able to mate with the rook if a player were allowed to pass you have to have zutzwang and that's building in a player's knowledge from the very beginning of how that kind of thing develops right throughout those different stages of the end game yeah it, it really feels like the end game it, it's like I don't know. It really like studying the end game really teaches you so many like fundamental truths about chess. It's like it's like you're really playing chess in the end game because it's like it, it every everything is implemented there. You have like the thinking ahead where you have to plan your moves, you have to anticipate your opponent's moves and you have to know like what you're going to be doing against them. Um but it's also the, this element of like Zugzwang which is like super important. Um and and because the positions are simpler, like with fewer pieces, it's like you kind of see things in their most uh, purest form, almost like in mathematics, like before solving difficult equations, you have to first be able to solve simple ones. And then those are kind of like building blocks for the harder stuff. Um, and I feel like that's a big reason why, like the, the so-called like Soviet chess school, there's this trope that it like it starts off in the end game. And it's like a lot of the beginner classes, like they focus on the end games because, yeah, it's just teaching you like so many fundamental aspects about the game that you have to understand first before you can put, introduce all the pieces on the board. Now you have all these like complicated like openings, middle games, you know, different tactics, you know, all, all this stuff. But, yeah, I think just seeing everything in its purest form, I don't know, I think that's super helpful for just like general, uh, general chess development. Um, I haven't worked with a lot of like total beginners or like, you know, kids that are like three years old, just starting out, you know, you're just like teaching them the absolute basics. You want them to grow to the strongest chess player possible. But I would 100% spend a lot of time on just like very simple end game positions because, yeah, just honestly, just like learning the Zugzwang thing, I think is so, so, so critical. Just understanding like the opponent has to make a move. Here are the moves they can make. Here the, here's the move that I should make to exploit the fact that they need to make a move. Just that kind of thinking process is crucial to develop. And I think the end game is the best way to, to develop that. Here's a nice one, Kostya. Do you know the Kings game where each player just has one King? And you're trying to get to the other side? Yeah. 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 That's sick. That's right. Fun. And as far as like, you know, actual application in a tournament, you can never actually gain points in king versus king. It's just a draw. Although I have seen a kid, I have seen two kids who had that position and the TD let them keep playing. And at some point they came and recorded the score and somebody had won the game. But <laughs> generally speaking, king versus king endgame, you can't actually get a leg up on somebody by being better at it in terms of scoring points in that exact position. But... If you if you play the king's game and and understand it, oh man, I mean it makes you better at playing all kinds of end games. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that's that's a good example because yeah, you're never gonna get that end game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have, to, have to play it out. 
Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, okay, I, I guess, yeah, we all agree. <laughs> Theoretical endgames are, are important. Um, but maybe, yeah, it's not, you don't have to spend as much time on them as you would spend on practicing more playable endgames with more pieces on the board, pawns on the board, um, where there's other concepts in play, even like middle game concepts. The king can fall under attack, you know, it can be like king, uh, king safety things and, um, of course, all kinds of like tactics and, and dynamics and, uh, and so on. Um, yeah, it's a vast field and sort of even the end game, simplifying it down some of these theoretical positions with just a couple pieces is great, but that's just one piece of studying the end game. And um, I think doing a certain amount of that is fundamental, but we don't think that people need to memorize all of those positions. And I think, I think that the diet should have more of the positional end games um, with more pieces on the board. Yeah. So, yeah, a couple of years ago, I got some flack for saying that Dvoretsky's Endgame Manual is one of the most overrated books out there. And <laughs> please let me defend myself once again. Yeah, the reason I was saying that is because I noticed a lot of people were buying this book at like 1500 1200 just like really levels where they're not going to be able to access most of the material. And at a level where, yeah, I think once you know just a few of these basic theoretical endgames, most of your time should be spending on the positional ones, like you would find in uh, endgame strategy or or Hellstein's like mastering endgame strategy book books like that that are much more uh, playable and conceptual. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely a big mistake to just try and as usual, like with openings as well, to just try to memorize a bunch of stuff, never apply it, never practice it, and then just just try to like keep it all in your memory. Because then, of course, during the game, you're never going to be able to uh, recreate it, and there's going to be variations, and you're just immediately going to get confused by what's uh, what's going on. Uh, actually, there, there's a bit about the Redsky's Endgame Manual in the Perpetual Chess book, and there's some different opinions, my opinions in there, <laughs> which is fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, well, we have it in the program, like 2200 plus around there, which I think is definitely a good, a good spot. It's very advanced. Before DEM, I think one should do the Silman book. Uh, I think after the Silman book, the next step would be the uh, Dea Via book, the 100 Endgames You Must Know. And um, I actually think, like, that's, like, it. Like, those three books, like Silman for newer players and club players, then Dea Via will be the next step, then DEM is kind of the final boss. I think that's it, like done, done. Just spend the rest of your time on the, the playable end games. Okay, I'm going to interject, and this is also just my <laughs> final thing anyway. You got to have what is what I call the Rook Endgame progression. That is advancing from the Philidor and Lucena series of difficult positions that it gets more and more difficult. We assign it to higher and higher levels. But if you don't master those rook end games, you're not gonna you're not gonna make it, nor will you have confidence. Not gonna it. make it to where to where Jesse. Because I'll be to honest where, with you, I, to, I like to, well let me finish. To wherever <laughs> it says in in the scaffolding of our program, right? So it begins around 16, 1700, just the basics, and then it gets bigger and bigger. And you have to win against people in your cohort. You'll never be perfect at it. this is important. You will never be perfect at it. No one will, but you need to be able to beat the people at your cohort in those positions to prove that you you know it. And that series of rook endgame positions is the critical boss in the endgame because the other ones, uh, you're not gonna get nearly as much. Those are the ones you will get multiple, multiple times. So I wanna say for, for us, first of all, I just wanted to close on this too, is that at least my close, you guys can do your own closing, but um, one of the things we have to fix is, or maybe I have to do it, I have to make that Rook end game progression more user-friendly because the la the matches were too long. So that's just me saying to the dojo, that's for Dojo 3.0, which is going to be May 2024. I have to get that done, just make it more user-friendly. Plus, I definitely also think that the dojo needs, once we get up to 1800, some kind of diet of endgame studies it has to be there, and we don't have that yet. And I bring that up because, right, like, one of the cool things about this book, and I hopefully we're going to talk about some of the other chapters, is it's a good touchstone for us to think about the program and what needs to happen. 
right? For us to, you know, we're constantly tweaking the thing, making it better. So anyway, there's my little, that's my final spiel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Kostya wasn't saying you don't also practice the Rook endgames. I think he was saying in terms of learning theoretical endgames from books, those three books would be all the theoretical, would mm -hmm. cover any theoretical ground you needed, like Kostya would say, and then you also practice them. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, Dvoretsky, uh, you know, has uh, like a, a ton. I mean, I, I think Dvoretsky has, I don't, I don't know, like all the, I don't, I don't I don't know about all the positions in like the rook endgame progression, but I'm sure it has a lot of them. I don't think the rook endgame progression, I'm sorry, Jesse, is like that critical. I think it's useful for sure. I think it's definitely useful for me. But like, yeah, I got to IM level without being able to like do it that well. You know, like the first time I did it, I was like already at IM, right? Doing it with David. And some of the positions I knew, a lot of them I didn't, you know, like you need to get pretty good at it. You'd learn, you, you had a yeah. lot of the skills. For and you guys just did the first one. You got to get to two and three, boss. Yeah, exactly. So two I, and three. I don't think, yeah, those are like necessary to get to. A lot of people are just trying to get to like 1800, you know, so I don't think like. Well, they're not. I'm uh, did eighteen hundred. You just need the first couple. You don't. You know. That's that's why I I like the design. We're gonna make it more user friendly too. But yeah, right. You need those positions. And you you coast you you you're trying to make GM boss. You need the okay, whole fine. thing, buddy. No, I, no, I'm with you. I I actually I totally hundred percent agree. Uh, but I don't think most people listening are IMs trying to get to GM right now. Like, I don't well, but but I, I'm also not saying that they. That's what I like about our program, right? We're not saying that yeah. they have to do all of that. We're saying like here's where you need it, and it's like the Silman book is. We're saying like, Genesis we pas Dave needs to master the queen versus king. That's what dude needs, right? And we're very mm -hmm. explicit on that. And then it gets harder and harder as we go up. Right. Yeah. Now, on There's the always other studies, ways to get somewhere, right? Like you could have a weakness yeah. and compensate and this and that, right? But mm -hmm. it's it's giving like a reasonable baseline. Um, and I think, you know, Jesse's right. There's a level at 1800 where it would be appropriate to be able to do a certain number of the of the Rook endgames in practice. It's not the only way mm -hmm. to get to 1900, but it would be very fitting, right? And, you know, very effective use of somebody's time but but i'll be clear i think at 1800 if you got lucina down you got filiter down honestly you're you're good in my opinion like for a while uh i mean i think it would help to to know more but i i, I think that's there's a lot of players that don't know more than lucina and they've gotten way higher than 1800 so i don't think it's necessary let me just yeah, say that no, no. No one thing is is necessary. They could make it there without knowing how to checkmate with king and queen by just no, being so overwhelmingly good at other things. It's yeah. possible. It's possible, but no, no, no. Yeah. we haven't seen that. <laughs> I haven't seen a player, you know, it's like 2,000. Oh, I don't know how to mate with king and royal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I've seen a player as high as like 1,500, 1,550 maybe not be able to checkmate with king and rook against king. And obviously they're like that, I would believe. 800 points above where that, yeah. ideally would sort of fit into a logical progression of your chess skills, right? So there's always outliers and ways of, 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 you know, compensating for something. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to say just for as a, to learn like a couple more rook end games. As a counterpoint, before people take what I said, like, oh, you just need Philidor and Lucien and run with it. I've also seen many strong players like 22, 23, even higher than that, that like, no very little opening theory by the way folks so it's not like opening theory is necessary to get to a super high level either right so you can also get right. super high without knowing a bunch of but there's a point where it might help you right so yeah yeah, yeah so it's not an excuse to just <laughs> avoid all the end game i just want to say on the end game studies this is exactly why i made the course for chessable because there was no like primer for these like end game tactics and uh i don't want to like to my own horn too much but i think that's a great course for people that have like never solved any like tricky endgame puzzles before to like learn a lot of the basic patterns and i do think if you Me went too. through that course that um that would then prepare you for much more challenging endgame studies that are just like really really at least you would have the basic patterns down that you need to know some of the thinking processes that are often uh involved and then you'd be able to at least tackle um, a book like uh, like Domination by Kasparian, a very famous book. A lot of great studies, but very difficult if you've like never solved uh, an endgame study before. 
Yeah. My my closing and parting thought on Endgames is this. I think maybe we should think more about the problem of how to make studying Endgames or practicing Endgames more fun. And we've thought about it some already, but I think maybe that's like the most fruitful place to think a little bit more because so often people are able to get good at the things that they actually enjoy. And you guys have each talked about people with complexes, of which I was one, right, who are avoiding end games or afraid of studying end games or don't enjoy end games. And we've got people in chat echoing exactly those things, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then all and then all three of us are echoing, oh, it's fantastic to learn this. It's useful to learn that. Here's all these benefits, right? And um, so maybe the most fruitful question is not how much should you study and at what level and what are the resources? Again, so many resources. Maybe it's like, how do we make it even more fun? Um, so that's kind of what I'm going to come away from today thinking about for myself. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, I mean, we have the, uh, the end game sparring, of course. When I've done like camps and classes, uh, whenever I'm showing an end game, I always have the students play it out, you know, and then they have to win from from either side or whatever if they have to win it or they have to hold it um so definitely making it competitive is something that could be um yeah could be useful Alrighty. all right so end games yay or nay i'm going yay <laughs> okay three folks. thumbs up let's take a screenshot <laughs> that'll do it um next time we're going to talk about some of the other topics in the uh perpetual chess book that are also controversial things like playing blitz how much openings should you be studying um so yeah hopefully hopefully this was very useful to, to anyone that's not wasn't super convinced on the importance of endgames you should like spar opening positions after all that <laughs> <laughs>